You're listening to Rock of Ages, where I introduce my theater kid friends to my favorite classic rock albums. And when we look at a concert album or a rock opera, they introduce me to their favorite musicals. Today we're talking about Tommy by The Who. With me, I have Romy. Hi. And Paul. Romy, can you hear me? Tommy is a rock opera by English singer-songwriter Pete Townshend and the fourth studio album by the English rock band The Who. Released on May 23rd, 1969 on Track Records in the UK and Decca in the US. It was produced by Kit Lambert and the genres are rock opera and art rock. And from All Music Review, Richie Unterberger. The full-blown rock opera about a deaf, dumb, and blind boy that launched the band to international superstardom was written almost entirely by Pete Townshend. Hailed as a breakthrough upon its release, its critical standing has diminished somewhat in the ensuing decades because of the occasional pretensions of the concept and because of the insubstantial nature of some of the songs that function as little more than devices to advance the rather sketchy plot. Nonetheless, the double album has many excellent songs, including I'm Free, Pinball Wizard, Sensation, Christmas, We're Not Gonna Take It, and the dramatic 10-minute instrumental Underture. Though the album was slightly flawed, Townshend's ability to construct a lengthy conceptual narrative brought new possibilities to rock music. Despite the complexity of the project, he and The Who never lost sight of solid pop melodies, harmonies, and forceful instrumentation, imbuing the material with a suitably powerful grace. Alright, what do we think of the Who's Tommy? And before you answer, I just want to let you know, this is it. This is the, like, first rock opera. The first album ever, at least the most first popular one, to synthesize the opera with rock. And all rock operas and rock musicals after it owe a huge debt, like Jesus Christ Superstar, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, The Wall, Rent, Bear Pop Opera, Great Comet, Spring Awakening, the list goes on and on. Whether or not you like this album or dislike it, it is important that we owe it a huge gratitude for practically kickstarting almost all the styles of musicals we cover on this podcast. Mm. It's great. It's great. Uh... Yay, we're on the same page. Okay, time to reveal our next album. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised it's not on uh, the National Recording Registry because it, like, pretty much made the rock opera. Well, yeah, it did make the rock opera, but retrospectively, it does sound a little narmy. Ah, yeah, there's some still some better stuff on there. Uh... Uh, oh, yeah, uh, hell, this isn't even the Who's Best Rock Opera. Quadrophenia, I'm, I'm more familiar with Tommy, but by all means, Quadrophenia is the more superior work. How does how does it compare to uh, Gasolina? What? Gasolina, the reggaeton song by Daddy Yankee, which is <laughs> actually is in the National Recording Registry, and Tommy isn't. Really? Uh, I don't I, I don't know, but uh, 
I mean, let's not diss reggae. Maybe it does belong in the recording registry. But uh, anyway, yeah, uh, I love this album, even though it is mighty flawed in many areas. Uh, for instance, I'm with you, Paul. The underture did not need to be 10 minutes long. No, it did not. If it was going to be... Un- Here's the biggest problem. It could be 10 minutes long. I don't care how long a song is, as long as it's doing something interesting. Sparks did something interesting. Yeah. Overture did something really interesting. Underture gets kind of boring. I'm sorry, I, it's I think a little the, bit boring I, to me. I think the point of Underture is it's the music that's played while everyone's taking a smoke break. Yeah. Like, oh, hey. Un- if that's the case, <laughs> then why not move it to further along in the soundtrack? Because this is only like, it doesn't feel like the halfway point. It uh, No, it doesn't. And uh, I think that's another big problem with this uh, album. It, it, the track listing is, it's not really well tracked. Which is ironic because it was distributed by a record label named Track. You'd expect them to have the best tracked records from tracked records, but I guess they don't. <laughs> For instance, um, <laughs> I think Sensation and I'm Free should have been switched. Like, why does it take three songs for Tommy to be like, he's free? He should say he's free immediately after the, sm- the mirror got smashed. Why is he suddenly talking about he's a sensation ten seconds after he got freed got cured whatever you want to call it i just i just don't think that makes sense yeah i mean i mean you can always switch it out um i could and you know who else switched it out pete townshend because i saw the the tommy movie earlier today he switched those two songs around as did the 1993 uh cast recording so oh thank you thank you pete townshend you're the best Speaking of the movie, I shared this story before and like watch this. I think watch this. I don't remember what episode, but it is about Pinball Wizard. Rod Stewart was the first choice to play the Pinball Wizard. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. Um, I, I love this story. Yeah, yeah. But then Elton John talked him out of it because he thought it would look stupid in those costumes and the movie was probably going to bomb and like put a dent in his career. So, uh, so he decided not to take it. And Elton John took it said he purposely <laughs> talked rod stewart out of <laughs> i believe the exact quote from elton john was don't touch it with a 10-foot pole uh-huh. the the rivalry between rod stewart and elton john is one for the ages don't touch it with a 10-foot pole so that he could wear 10-foot shoes exactly <laughs> Uh, and we could talk more about Elton John and Rod Stewart's rivalry, but this is an episode about The Who. But I did want to mention another anecdote that you told me, Romy, about how Rod Stewart got Elton John a mini fridge for Christmas, and then Elton John got Rod Stewart a Rembrandt painting. Oh. Wait, I, wait, I, I think... I remember that. that. I remember that. That was the perfume episode, I think. I, I think it was the, the favorite episode, actually. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I oh yeah there was like I don't know why I blurred those I I I just remember we were talking a lot about like I for some reason I thought the perfume episode was the one where I was just spouting like random facts from a music themed bathroom reader <laughs> I think that was the one too and then I started spewing out my own music facts Oh uh, uh, yeah and I remember yeah, you corrected me saying the offset quote that uh Ringo Starr isn't even the best drummer in the Beatles which is a uh, of course, because of their massive three-drummer setup. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, let's talk about uh, Tommy some more, because the plot is a very plot. 
It has exposition. It has rising action. It has climax. It has falling action. But you know what it lacks? Resolution. Resolution. Yep. <laughs> it just stops. Like stops right in its tracks. But before we go into why it stops in its tracks, I feel like it would be best that we actually talk about the plot proper. So we start with Tommy's father heading off to war. And it's he's presumed dead, so his wife gets another lover. He acts as, like, a father figure for Tommy. But then, he comes back. Somehow, Captain Walker returned. <laughs> and outside of the song, it's figure out that the real father kills the stepfather. Yep. In the, in the, in, it in happens the, right in front of Tommy. Yep. In the movie and the musical, I think it's reversed. I think the, uh, the father comes home and then the stepdad kills him. And I, I was wrestling oh. with this, and I, I kind of like that change more, because in the in the movie, it's established that the stepfather is in charge of a holiday camp. He is a grifter by nature, so it makes sense that he would be he would profit off of Tommy's later fame. Mm. But anyway, uh, in, in the rock opera, the original rock opera, the walkers tell Tommy that he didn't see the murder, he didn't hear the murder, and he will never speak of the murder ever. But because Tommy Walker no is the single most stupidest child in the history of rock operas, maybe of all time, he takes this to heart. His somehow his his bodily structure makes it so he becomes blind, deaf, and mute for like twenty five years. <laughs> that that remains the same energy as uh, the cricket on the hearth, which was a Charles Dickens story that was made into a TV special. Like this girl, her lover was pres- he was presumed dead in the war, and the trauma of finding out leaves her blind. And you know, I I can I can mm. that actually makes sense. Sometimes people block things out of their memories because of trauma. But Tommy Walker is five years old. He doesn't even understand the concept of deaf, dumb, and blind. I don't think. I think it's more of a metaphor, but I'll get to that later. Yeah, uh, I saw you talk a bit, a little bit of it in your notes. But anyway, Tommy is practically unreachable by the outside world. He can only see himself through a mirror. And don't find out later. Uh, his parents try so many things to get his eyesight back, including taking him to prostitutes, to drug addicts, but nothing works. They start to lose faith in the boy because if he can't see, hear, or even talk about Jesus, then he won't go to heaven. And Tommy also gets abused a lot by his family members, including cousin Kevin and Uncle Ernie, who I should mention, by the way, in the rock opera is portrayed by the bassist John Entwistle. I don't really like John Entwistle as Uncle Ernie because he is no Keith Moon. Keith Moon is the ultimate Uncle Ernie. Uh, is he the one that in Heinz Baked Beans is like, what's for tea, daughter? That's John. <laughs> I think oh. I think Keith is the one at the beginning who goes, what's for tea, Bob? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Keith Moon is a wild uh, animal. It always comes to Heinz Baked Beans. <laughs> yep, I listened to Heinz Baked Beans before g- going on to this episode. For luck. Tommy, people start to realize that Tommy is good at playing pinball, and he starts to become the, the best pinball player in England, and so much so that he amasses a cult following, but his parents still hate him because he's deaf, dumb, and blind. So they take him to a doctor, and the doctor concludes that his stasis is not out of body, because his eyes respond to light, his ears respond to sound, and he can move his mouth and generate sounds. 
It is internal, though. And Psychological. Exactly. And the parents don't conclude, damn, maybe we shouldn't have told him not to say, speak, or hear anything about the murder. Instead, they just smash the mirror because they're entitled little pricks. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Tommy's mom smashes the mirror that Tommy so adores. And that suddenly jolts Tommy back to being uh, able to see, hear, and talk again. He realizes he's free and he sees how much of a master he has become. Realizes how much of a sensation he is, and his popularity is bigger than ever. The world that already had such an influence on Tommy, he is now giving back to the world. One uh, particular girl, Sally Simpson, experiences this uh, firsthand. He, wa he wants all of his followers to live in his house, but when there's not enough room, he decides to start up a holiday camp. Which is basically like a British version of Six Flags, I think. Oh, is that what it is? But Tommy, yeah, I never saw the movie, so I wouldn't know. Yeah, so uh, Tommy starts to preach to his followers that in order to be like him, they literally have to do everything like him. They have to put stuff over their eyes, uh, cover their ears, and gag their mouths so they can be like Tommy. And they also have to play pinball. Everyone else sees this and like... This is fucking grooming. And then they just, they just destroy everything that Tommy has built, leaving him with nothing. The end. <laughs> that, that, like, uh, it just, yeah, it just stops. Like, that kind of reminds me of, there was this movie called The Devil Inside. It's like this horror movie, like, about, like, in, in this, an investigation into, like, demonic possession. The second act mm. was, like, the third act's about to ramp up, and then everybody's dead in a car accident and then it cuts to a title card saying the case was never solved visit the rossifiles.com for information it sounds like a oh that's right that sounds like a bad choose your own adventure ending <laughs> yeah you know Society what it is? if the devil inside actually ended properly <laughs> yeah <laughs> do you think they ran out of budget so they were just like okay let's kill off everyone no i think it was more they were trying to do what uh, Blair Witch Project did. The Blair Witch Project. People to use the internet. Well, the Blair Witch Project was different. Yeah. Well, they like, used advertising through the internet. Yeah. They wanted to use the internet as a way to extend the film. They did it very poorly. Yeah. And, and also, like, we were, like, in the middle of Act 3 when the Blair Witch Project suddenly stopped. Devil Inside was literally just about to start Act 3 and then, like, nope, the end. Like, there's, there's no sense of... Uh, Fuck it. What's the word? Uh... Catharsis? No, not catharsis. Like, there's no horror. It just stops dead in its oh. tracks. Literally. There's no tension. It's just... Yeah, that I've never seen that movie, but I know how much of a mess it is. Yeah. But uh, the Tommy movie is also a mess, but in a completely different way, because it was 1975. It has kind of an ending. In, I mean, yeah. In my opinion. Tommy emerges from the rubble. He's, he says his famous uh, prayers to someone probably god probably himself but uh, we it's still rather ambiguous i don't know i'm just thinking about like, at one point uh, they sang it live i think it was at woodstock this one song see me yep rising it was yeah. like it was like poetry yep uh -huh. oh. and they, they they did the same thing for the for the movie during the see me feel me listening to you part tommy was climbing up a mountain and the sun was rising, and it was it was awesome. And I, I think they, they tried to re recapture that feeling at every Who concert now. Like, when when, when they do Listening to You, uh, the they have, like, a little thing of the sun rising or something. 
I I I was literally at a Who concert, so I would know. Uh. It's been a while since I was there, but it was fun. It was nice to see these cranky old rockers give a, a last hurrah. Ever since I was a young boy, I played the silver ball. From Soho down to Brighton, I must have played them all. But I ain't seen nothing like him in any amusement hall. That depth on the flying kid sure plays a mean pinball. So the movie was directed by notoriously eccentric and weird director Ken Russell. Uh, he did a lot of movies, m most of which I have not seen, but I'm still rather interested in seeing them. Uh, fun fact, I think Tommy is like the only film of his that's rated PG, which would absolutely not slide today. It would definitely get an R rating if it was released today. Uh, more or oh. less because of Keith Moon as Uncle Ernie in that three minute scene. Oh, really? They show it? They don't Dang. show it, but they imply it. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I briefly confused Ken Russell with Ken Loach, the guy that made stuff like Kaz and all those other stuff about the working class. Uh, Ken Russell also directed another film in 1975 called Lizdomania. It was an adaptation on the life of my favorite historical figure, 19th century composer Franz Liszt. And you want to know who played Franz Liszt? Who? Roger Daltrey. Wow. Oh. It all ties together. Yep. Unfortunately, Keith Moon does not make an appearance as Uncle Ernie, so <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> yeah. But do you want to know who else is in it? Who? Ringo Starr as the Pope. Oh. What? Wow. It, it, I've only seen clips, but I really want to see it all because it sounds so wild. <laughs> the, uh, Rick Wakeman actually does the soundtrack. Rick Wakeman being the uh, keyboardist for Yes. He also plays Thor in the movie. <laughs> huh. he, he's just what? there as Thor. And uh, there's one clip of the movie where uh, Liszt's composer, co contemporary Richard Wagner, bites him like a vampire and steals his uh, talent and then starts like a neo-Nazi regime with Liszt's daughter Cosima. So basically Richard oh. Wagner. Oh. All this needs is uh, Anne losing her arm. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. I should also let you know, uh, the in, in the film, Wagner is played by Paul Nicholas. Paul Nicholas was also in Tommy's Cousin Kevin. Ah. <laughs> so I guess Roger Daltrey can't get a break from that Cousin Kevin of his. Speaking of Cousin Kevin, um, though I do a song, I'm not really sure what purpose Cousin Kevin serves as a whole. Like, we have Uncle Ernie to show how people take advantage of him, but Cousin Kevin just kind of does that, but at a lesser level. C Cousin like, Kevin is I kind of like a, down the stairs. Kevin is kind of like a representation of the rampant ableism that was present in the time period and kind of still relevant today. Couldn't I, Uncle Ernie have also been that in a way? Yeah, but er Ernie used it for his own personal gain. Kevin used it for no gain whatsoever. He just liked doing it. So pleasure. Got it. Yeah. And I, I kind of find it weird that Cousin Kevin doesn't come back to mooch with the rest of the family for the holiday camp. It could be that uh, Kevin yeah. still hates Tommy because he was still, quote, a freak last time he babysat him, which, uh... 
I guess that would that would make sense. Uh, it still would have been funny it'd to be see. Kind of, it'd be kind of funny if cousin Kevin, when he found out that everyone left Tommy's house, that he's like, "Hey, I have my own religion. Come over to me." And he made his own thing just to spite him. Oh my god, that is such a Cousin Kevin thing to do. <laughs> I say as if I have known Cousin Kevin personally throughout my entire life. I should note that uh, Cousin Kevin and Fiddle About, the Uncle Ernie song, were not written by Townshend. They were written by John Entwistle, who was known for his creepy songs. But I should also note that Cousin Kevin and Fiddle About were inspired by Pete Townshend's childhood. According to him, he was constantly mistreated and abused by family members, which, uh, given the lyrical nature of both those songs, Pete, you should see a therapist. Uh, sure he did. Yeah, uh, actually he didn't, because in the, he, in the early 2000s, he got kind of caught up in a scandal. You see, he was, he was reaching out to people to see if they experienced, uh, similar things as him. And they ended up sending him pictures of, like, wounds and stuff, and the police oh. confiscated it because they thought it was child porn. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I guess that's a fun way to find out that you were abused as a child physically and sexually by your relatives, which is disgusting. And I, f I feel bad for Pete Townshend, honestly. Uh, this this uh, rock opera has a, a lot of themes, and... Uh, not all of them are as good as, well, not really good as in good, good as in, like, morally good, as, hey, I can play pinball. You said that in the notes that somebody said, hey, you should make a song about pinball. Oh, yeah, that was, like, their record label's, like, boss. Got it. The Who were, like, afraid that the album wouldn't do well, but when Townshend found out that his record label had, like, uh, pinball, he was like, Oh, you know, you know, I bet you're gonna love our new song on our rock opera. It's about pinball. I, you like pinball, right? And I, I thought, I thought that was funny. Ah, coincidental, because when Elton John covered it, it's now one of his biggest hits. Yeah, uh, and I, I have to say, I like both The Who's version and Elton John's version just as much as each other. But I know a lot of people, I've read a lot of people hate the Elton John version of Pinball Wizard, even though it was Townshend's idea for Elton John to sing I, Pinball I Wizard. I really, yeah, I really thought you said Pinball Weezer. I thought so too. I, mm. I heard it myself. <laughs> but, it was but also like, the Beatles' idea to make somebody edit um, Pinball Wizard so like the Buddy Holly riff just shows up. What was that, Paul? I said it was also the Beatles' idea to make the Sgt. Pepper's movie. No, it like wasn't. It was a cash cow. It wasn't. I thought it was, it was like a, a cash cow. Yeah, like George himself was like, I feel sorry for everyone who is involved in this thinker. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> no, none of them liked it. <laughs> they yes, and to quote Andrew's letterbox review of the wall, Tommy walked so Sergeant Peppers could fall flat on its fucking face, thus allowing the wall to fucking trample it. <laughs> that was my <laughs> review for Tommy, not the wall, but yeah, you're right, you're right. I mean, sorry, it's Tommy. Yeah. Uh, that's what I meant to say. Yeah. Uh, we're listening to Acid Queen right now, and the album version is nice, but uh, Tina Turner's version absolutely smokes it because she's Tina goddamn Turner. Yeah. 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 And uh, e even if you haven't seen the movie, you should definitely check out the uh, Acid Queen clip from the movie that I linked because uh, it is so wild. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Eyesight to the Blind, The Hawker. Uh, I think it works very well as a cover song in a rock musical, rock opera, whatever you want to call it. Because at least it, it matches the, the story. Yeah. I mean, it, it does match the story, but like its purpose in the story, it just kind of feels like 
mm. acid queen, but from a male perspective. I feel like I Side to the Blind could have come right before Acid Queen. Again, the, the tracking on the original album is not as good as Townshend wanted it to be. The uh, movie soundtrack yeah. and the, uh, the 1990s Broadway musical show Townshend's tracking is much more realized. Yeah. Also, also on uh, I Side to the Blind, uh, the singer on that song is Eric Clapton, and that almost jump scared me. <laughs> in the movie version, I should clarify. Uh. <laughs> I was just sitting there minding my own business and everyone's at church worshipping Marilyn Monroe and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, Eric Clapton jump scare. <laughs> Did you know this was like a one year before his incident in Birmingham? Oh. So, like, he was still in the public eye considered, like, one of the cooler guys in rock and roll. And then he went on it's that like, drunk. What? He went on that drunken rant against the uh, the Jamaicans and the Africans emigrating to England during the rise of the National Front. And Eric has made it very clear that he doesn't like that. And even after all these years, he he has never doubled down on it. He's like he acknowledged he said that, but he was never like, "I'm sorry for saying this." He was like, "Did you know that I had a black girlfriend once? That automatically makes me not a racist, and I love BB King. That makes me not a racist either." <laughs> uh. I wonder yeah. if Pete Townshend looks back on that eyesight to the blind scene and is like, should have gone with Jeff Beck. Uh, I don't know. I guess it's kind of like trying to watch Baby Driver, but then you remember that... Uh, Spacey. Yep. Kevin Spacey. I have the exact same dilemma with Fred Claus. Yeah. Mm. That's right. <laughs> remember when, Remember the Fred Claus episode, Romy, when we actively tried to ignore his existence whenever he was on screen? Yeah, I mean, I mean, but they still had the, like the Superman cape for him, and uh, and uh, you thought that was like a nice little Easter egg reference to uh, his role in Superman Returns. Yeah, I had I had to break the lore at some point just for that mm. one little thing. Yeah, good news though, Kevin Spacey isn't in Tommy. Yippee! Yeah, yeah, tying it back together again. Yeah. You know, I think the first time I actually heard of Tommy, like, I still wasn't aware of it as a concept or an album at this point. I, I at least heard the name Tommy was when I was, like, fishing around the Phineas and Ferb wiki, and I was looking at the page for the episode Mommy Can You Hear Me? And on the illusions slash references uh, category, it said that the episode name was a reference to the Who song Tommy Can You Hear Me from Tommy. Yeah, and, uh... I'm mentioned this before but i heard tommy can you hear me playing in the middle of a mall (laughs) on my local mall like like uh like 10 a.m or something (laughs) and uh i I, yeah i was just there and uh i don't remember why i was there but uh works better than uh fiddle about yeah (laughs) i thought it was from the day i went to see licorice pizza but uh it turns out the theater wasn't even open at that point because of omicron yeah also i pointed this out in like our bonus episode on the who's episode a quick one while he's away but one of the characters from minions the one that was played by john ham looks almost exactly like pete townshend i don't know must have must have been like yeah that couldn't be a coincidence considering the movie is set like in the 60s i think i've never seen it and i have no intention to (laughs) what if i make you watch minions Um, (laughs) for my birthday at least rise of group Wait, at least Rise of Gru has some some banger artists. I mean, a lot of them I like. Uh, Phoebe Bridgers, Wise Blood, or is it Wise Blood? Um, and uh, the difference between Pete Townshend and the character whose name I can't remember is that the character has longer legs. 
Yeah. That's just how cartoons are. Noodle people. <laughs> yeah. Over-exaggerated features. Yeah. Oh my god, guys, we are still uh, in Underchurch. Do I have permission to skip this song? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right. <laughs> we did it. We skipped the longest song on the album. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to mention uh, Keith Moon. His drumming isn't exactly the most profound on this album, but he still does a very good job. In, and that includes on Underture. I think some of his drum fills are pretty cool. And that's like one of the reasons I'll, I'll sit through all 10 minutes is so I can listen to Keith Moon's drum fills. And he does that. He has. He's got a lot of great drum moments on the entire album. Uh, amazing journey, like forty-five seconds in, like that. Like that. That that lives rent-free in my head. I love that part. And I. I uh. And I, I've seen like I've heard so many uh, live renditions of that song, and Keith Moon just slays every time. And. The best part about Keith Moon is that he has, like, no formal training whatsoever in drums. Mm. He, he's just banging on that drum, hoping that maybe, just maybe, it sounds coherent. And half the times it doesn't, but he still manages to be, like, one of the greatest drummers of all time. I think he's, like, my film teacher's absolute favorite drummer, tied with uh, John Bonham and Stuart Copeland. Mm. Again, my, uh, my film teacher is a bit of a hipster. Uh, I, yeah. find, I love how he he calls himself. I'm a hipster. I only listen to like the most niche underground depressing stuff. My favorite drummers are Keith Moon and Stuart Copeland. I bet you don't even know who they are, you weak child. Mm. <laughs> I, I'm kidding. He doesn't sound like that. But yeah, Tommy. Yeah. I think my I think my favorite one song character out of everyone is Sally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her her segment in uh, the in the movie is also pretty cool. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Eric Clapton is on guitar on that one, but don't worry, you can barely hear him. <sighs> and you can't even tell it's him, honestly. It's just a jump scare if you know him kind of thing. Yeah, it's 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 honestly only a Weird. jump. It's only a jump scare if you hear him sing. I only, uh. I'm fine if Clapton's on a song, uh, just playing the guitar. Like while my guitar gently weeps, that's a fucking banger. It's just that when he sings, he you can. It's it's not a very pleasant thing to listen to. Uh, okay, so this kind of has a... I know it's not a musical, but it has kind of has a degree of Rupert Holmes. Um, so the let me get... Uh, I guess I'll have to help me out on this one. Well, Tommy so, did have like a, a 90s Broadway run, so that could count. Yes, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, the musical was directed by the guy that directed the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie which wait um, really yeah and then uh something something Rupert Holmes yep we I, did I, it we did it <laughs> we did it uh yeah, let me let me think here the who okay. and Rupert Holmes are British we did it okay great you know, I don't know what else is great Spongebob macaroni and cheese oh yeah coming back. come back never really cared for their mac and cheese uh, yeah, so, I, we don't get it in. We we call it craft dinner here, but I, I don't. I wouldn't expect SpongeBob craft macaroni and cheese any okay. anytime soon. I never liked their mac and cheese anyway either. It it was too weird of a shape. So I'm not I'm not gonna eat macaroni shaped like SpongeBob. I'm just not. See 
So, Paul, you you mentioned this earlier. What would you say is like the main theme of the rock opera? Oh yes, the theme. It's I I personally believe, and this you can interpret it any way. It's that's what art is. You interpret it. But I think that this is. I said grief in my notes. I, that's the wrong word. Trauma is the right word. Mm, Having suppressing. It's about suppressing trauma. Like at the beginning, it's about how Tommy su- has to suppress that trauma, and doing so, he causes his body to mentally block out everything. That trauma, what that suppression of trauma does for other people is it allows them to take advantage of him. And when he yeah. finally, when he finally has control of himself, he uses that trauma he has to control others. That's what I personally think it's about. Yeah, you're, you're not too when, far off. When he was too far with trying to control people, people turn away from him, and all he's left with is his trauma that he has, and he has yeah. nothing to do but think about it himself. Yeah. One thing he neglected to do the entire time. So, while the, while the ending is still left ambiguous, Tommy still finally comes to terms with his trauma, I think. Mm. I'd like to think so. Yeah. Should be worth noting, though, that still, Tommy is not my favorite uh, rock opera. I think that would be The Wall, because it's The Wall. Like, why would it not be my favorite rock opera? Is Bear Count? I guess that's a pop opera. I mean, no, I mean, they call it a pop opera, but it's definitely, like, rock opera. But, like, I think to constitute as, like, an actual, like, bona fide rock opera, it has to be, like, done by an actual rock band, like... Bear Pop Opera was not originally done by Santana, or, uh, <laughs> or, yes. Oh, then I guess I'd go with David Bowie's. Ziggy Stardust? Yes. That is, a, that is a, that is a, trying to think of the whole name. <laughs> the Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. It's episode 26, Paul. Get it right. <laughs> but yeah, that is a wonderful uh, example. There's also The Who's Quadrophenia from 1973, <laughs> which I think is their better rock opera. And to bring some uh, other examples that we'll do later on this podcast, uh, The Kinks, Arthur, or The Decline and Fall of the British Empire, released in the same year as Tommy, 1969. Very, very good. It's not a double album, but it still manages to give a storyline, even if not all the details are there. 1974, we have Genesis, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, which has a story that's so weird that not even William Friedkin could do it, even though Peter Gabriel really wanted him to do it. And we also have, coming up, more modern... Meatloaf, Bat Out of Hell. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, that was a that was a good episode we did. We went long and hard on that album. But also, uh, My Chemical Romance, The Black Parade. Oh yeah. And, uh... I subtracted it from the wheel a while back, but I'm thinking of adding it back. Uh, green idiot, green. I almost said green idiot. American day. <laughs> <laughs> green day, American idiot. <laughs> hey, what's your favorite band? Obviously, green idiot. <laughs> could be taken either way. Like you could say green idiot, like you're calling the person an idiot, and they're like, band is green. <laughs> But yeah, we'll have plenty of more rock operas to discover on this podcast. Yeah, there's some other um, pretty cool um, concept albums we could do. Um, Joe's Garage. Oh, Zappa. Yeah, that's uh, that's a bit too long, honestly. Uh, I, I I have still not gotten into Zappa yet, and frankly, I'm not sure if I want to right now. Sorry. Uh, well, how about how about you, Romy? Uh, 
What would you give this album out of 10? And would you recommend 8. it? 8.5? To... Yep, there we go. And uh, would you recommend it to a theater kid? Uh, sure. I also want to recommend them the Tommy Cast recording from Broadway. Of course, Just yeah. So. The, the I think this album is better than that cast recording, but if you're going to introduce Tommy to them, then maybe uh, the Tommy cast recording is a better way to introduce the theater kids. Uh, uh, how about you, Paul? Um, I had originally done 8 out of 10, but honestly, over time, that Christmas song kind of starting to on me a little bit more oh, now yeah. christmas is a banger like i thought it was a little bit repetitive at first but then i'm like that repetitiveness got stuck in my head and now it's like okay yeah that's a pretty great song such and is so, the nature of christmas songs so so but christmas made tommy better <laughs> and so i'm going to give it an 8.3 out of 10 Yippee. Uh, and would you recommend it to a theater kid, this very famous album that kickstarted the rock opera, rock musical genres? Yeah, I would. And like Romy, I would say look at the cast recording because it puts the songs in a, I would consider, a much more cohesive order. And also it's done by many different artists, so you can tell difference in characters yeah i don't know if that's a major oh yeah major that, problem. I, I i can i completely get you like there's only three singers in the who and it's hard to tell which which character is supposed to be who yeah. it hasn't been a problem with other rock operas but i guess that's because usually they're the narrator or they're singing for one character specifically i think the gay dad from fun home was also in the tommy musical oh really that's cool i think so uh, i'll have to check on this uh, i don't know but anyway yeah i i listened to that uh, cast recording like three years ago to be honest i did not like it that much i like tommy better i like the original rock upper better because you know that's just me but uh yeah i owe this record a huge debt because if not for it a lot of the rock operas and rock musicals we have covered on this podcast simply would not exist and if they did they would exist in much different formats let me tell you that i i I got the genesis to do this podcast in December of 2020, uh, and it had nothing to do with this album, but uh, I first got the idea to introduce my theater kid friends to rock albums in August of 2020, when I in somehow inspired Jess to listen to the Tommy rock opera, the original one, while I went to listen to the cast recording. And I remember she uh, she picked out uh, Christmas as her favorite, and I, I feel felt glad about myself not just because i actually got a friend of mine to listen to a rock album that i really enjoy but also because i forced someone to endure 10 minutes of underture Mm. (laughs) yeah and so uh thank you tommy for for being like the the seed that planted this wonderful podcast i owe you a huge debt and frankly uh this album it's got a lot of problems the tracking is weird. The the production is not the Who's best, and they and like every album they do, like up till Quadrophenia, is better than this. But for what it means for the history of rock operas and rock musicals, moreover, what it means for me in general, I just I can't I can't just give it an eight point one like I gave it in my ratings. I have to give it a point higher. I have to give it a nine point one. Because it's it's just it's such an important album and it's it's such a great album not the greatest album, but when I listen to it I feel happy and would I recommend it to a theater kid? Absolutely. Um, to be honest, I feel like maybe they would like Quadrophenia more because the plot is much more realized. But uh, Tommy is definitely more notable and more famous, and it's 
It's just Tommy, man. Yeah. yeah. You know, I expected more people to come on for Tommy, but I'm I'm glad that we at least were able to talk about Tommy. Yeah, I'm glad. All right, so I think I finally figured out the six degrees of Rupert Holmes. All right. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, Who's Tommy was turned into a musical and was directed by Kate Townshed and Des McEnough. It was Des McEnough was also the director of the Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle, the movie, in 2000. In that movie, there is a cameo by Billy Crystal as a mattress salesman. Yep. Oh, yeah. That scene. And, and Billy Crystal's most famous role is Mike Wazowski from Monsters, Inc., which is a Disney movie, technically. You know what's also a Disney movie? Lion King. What? And in Lion King, there's a character named Zazu, who in other interpretations is played by Edward Hibbert. You know... Who Edward Hibbert also played in? Who was also what? a character in the original Broadway showing of Curtains, directed mm-hmm. by Rupert Holmes. There we yeah. go. Ah! It always goes back to Curtains. Yeah, only we could find the link to Marty if it ever showed up. Uh, I It would be so funny if Pete Townsend just used that connection to make a cameo in the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie. Maybe take one of Jonathan Winter's three cameos. Pete Townsend jump scare. Yes. Tommy is a rock opera. I don't know if you guys picked up on that yet. It was subtle. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. But the point is, we get to do a musical for next episode. Yay. Yeah. And uh, guess what? We are recording this episode on September 30th, the last day of September, which means two things. Number one, could someone please wake up Billy Joel Armstrong and tell him that September is ended? No. <laughs> Number two, uh, it's October, which is the spoopy Halloween month. Mm. Yeah. Yep, mm. and uh, which means all of our albums, all of our episodes for October are going to be Halloween themed. Nice. And uh, what better way to start off October with a spooky musical? What's it gonna be? What's what is it gonna be? I I don't know. But uh, it is one of the most famous spooky musicals in Broadway slash off-Broadway history. And besides, if I didn't do this, the theater kids would probably crucify me like they did with Tommy. (laughs) But yeah, uh, so without further ado, our next musical and our first episode of Halloween Month is going to be Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Oh my god, yes! Yes! All right, thank you. I get excited.